What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans and a huge milestone in the stock market today. As the Dow trades above 30,000 for the first time, everything is working today. All 11 sectors are higher. In fact, the underperformers this year, energy and financials, are leading today's gains. And all of this is happening against a backdrop of slowing consumer confidence and rising COVID-19 cases across the country. Let's get straight to Dom Chu. He's got a broader look at today's milestone for us. Dom? It's the K-shaped recovery continuing to widen out here with stocks outperforming in a very big way versus the rest of the Main Street economy in America. But take a look at this because, as you point out, above that 30,000 mark, and I want to say at the day's high so far, we're talking about 30,117. That's the intraday high so far. So we're pretty close to that at this stage. The S&P 500 up one and a half percent. It has been a recent trend. The Nasdaq underperforming only up a little north of one percent right now. Speaking of, let's put all of these in context. These three major indices in the United States on a year to date basis. You can see here the Nasdaq still very much the outperformer up 34 percent. The S&P up 12 and a half percent. And the Dow Industrial is only up 5%. That speaks to the reason why you can see here on this side of the screen, the white line, much more of a move to the upside here. The Dow is playing catch up with both the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. And the three stocks on a percentage basis that have done the best on a year-to-date basis in the Dow Jones Industrial Average are all technology. It's Salesforce.com up 59%, Apple up 56%, and Microsoft up 35. I'm going to put a little asterisk up here by Salesforce because that's a recent addition to the Dow, only there since last summer. But still, you can tell technology is still the predominant theme in terms of the outperformance within the Dow so far. We'll see if that trend continues. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Dom, stay right there. Let's also bring Mike Santoli into this chat. And Mike, I want to emphasize the importance of the retail trader here in getting us to Dow 30K. The everyday Americans, the Robin Hood crowd that started buying stocks in earnest at the lows, they've been pouring into this market ever since. This is the year of the Main Street investor, Mike, a force that's so big, they're offsetting the loss of corporate stock buybacks. And everyone should keep that in mind when they're tempted to say Wall Street at new highs. There's been a ton of Main Street participation here, right? Well, there has been. I I think it's segmented. There's no doubt that there's a new aggressive emotional energy and generally an optimistic one coming from those younger retail traders. You see it in record high volumes. People are willing to pay for these speculative call options. You're seeing it in parts of technology. You're seeing it in, you know, electric vehicle stocks go crazy this month. So, yes, it's absolutely in there. And it's been largely missing from this bull market, if you want to trace this back to 2009. But Their parents and older siblings and grandparents have been selling into it until very recently. So you saw things like mutual fund flows going out, uh, not in, as the market went up uh, until about two or three weeks ago. So I do think there's a bit of an offset here, but there's there's no doubt about it that there is more of a retail flavor and it creates a different rhythm to this market. And, Dom, we've been looking at what the market's done this year. Extraordinary since the lows. We were 18,000 back in March. 
I mean, we know that when we fall 40 percent, you got to rise 50 something percent just to get back to the highs. The fact that we've done that and then some is just amazing. And it comes this week. I mean, this month has been a monster. The Russell small caps are up 18 percent, Dom, since November 1st. You know, the rest of the markets, the Dow's up about 12 percent. Um, it's definitely having its best month right now since 1987. It could, if we get another 100 points or so, have its best month since 1976 which is pretty extraordinary. You look at the past, you know, what got us here, we've had the election results, this kind of purple Washington, if you want to call it that. Uh, the vaccine news, three consecutive weeks in a row now. And then last night, the Janet Yellen news. And don't you think that's a factor here as well? It's certainly a factor. But I would say that those factors have been in play in just the last few weeks. It speaks nothing to the notion of what's powered the vast majority of these gains since the pandemic lows in March. And what has that been? That has been a massive multi-trillion dollar effort from both the Federal Reserve Bank here in the United States, as well as a multi-trillion dollar effort in terms of fiscal relief, taxpayer money being deployed to help underprivileged Americans during that entire time. Those two factors have driven a lot of the optimism that we've seen in the market over the course of the past several months. What I would say is people who ask all the time, well, how can the market be so good if the economy is still struggling? Well, it's because it's simply put a discounting mechanism. There is so much more optimism right now about what 2021 and possibly what 2022 look like in the aftermath of COVID-19, when vaccines are in full play, when the economy can no longer worry about a pandemic. That's the reason why it's so key right now. Mike, I mean, people who broke out those flapper costumes for Halloween, you know, were, were yeah. <laughs> that's that's the mentality right over here about the roaring 20s all the time. Just give us something quickly to watch before we go um, in the market today, whether it's, you know, a level or kind of more of a sentiment gauge. Yeah. I mean, what, what are you going to be watching? Well, I, I think the big question right now in the very short term is whether sentiment is becoming a little bit too aggressive, too exuberant. There's many gauges of that. I would also take a look at the S&P 500 because as much as it seems like we've gone relentlessly higher, it's been in about a three-month trading range. And where the S&P is trading right now is right the high we saw a couple of weeks ago, November 9th, when we got the Pfizer vaccine news. So it's been kind of going sideways, even as components of the market really go nuts to the upside and some of the big stocks uh, cool off. So the question is, you know, it's not surprising we're a percent and a half higher than we were on September 2nd, which is where we are in the S&P, given all the better than expected news. But I I do think the question is whether we have a short term ceiling that's being formed right around that area. Fair enough. And I think Dom's earlier point was right on as well, which is, you know, in some ways, this is the Dow catching up to the Nasdaq and to the broader market. Guys, thank you both. Mike Santoli, Dominic Chu. And with the Dow hitting 30,000, you might be wondering if it's time to take some risk off the table. My next guest says, "Okay, sure. But if you're looking for safety, you might actually find it in the growth stocks. For more, I'm joined by Rebecca Patterson. She's director of investment research at Bridgewater Associates. Rebecca, it's great to see you. So we can start there or, you know, kind of your gut check on 30,000 following the chat that we just had. What are you thinking? Well, with 30,000, I feel like I should have worn green rather than red. But but I think I think we set this up. So technology is a safety stock. I think we probably need to explain what the heck we're talking about. You know, and, and I think the big picture thing here, what's really important is to understand what this uh, policy mix that Dominic Chu just talked about, incredible fiscal policy, really coordinated with monetary policy, what that means. Um, because this is something new. And as we see this rotation trade continue, it affects how that rotation trade will work versus the past. So it's important for investors to understand. 
Now, we grew up with the Fed raising cutting interest rates that were great till 2008. And then when that no longer was effective, they moved to asset purchases. That worked until the pandemic. And when the pandemic came, monetary policy alone wasn't sufficient to really lift us out of that. And so we had to have this more coordinated fiscal monetary mix where the Fed is buying assets, keeping yields down, facilitating the bigger budget deficits. Now, how that plays into tech, I think the main point is that with yields low and likely to stay low for a long time as the Fed plays this role, people have to move Mm -hmm. out the risk curve. They're owning more stocks. They need to to get their return. But you don't want all the stocks you own to have that high cyclical correlation. You want some stocks to have more bond-like attributes. And that's what helped a lot of the technology, a lot of the growth names earlier this year. High free cash flow, strong balance sheets. They're going to survive no matter what the economy throws at them, as well as some structural supports. But I think when we're talking about tech here, it's interesting to me today that the NASDAQ is up over 1%. It's underperforming, but the exodus out of it is not necessarily the same in the rotation that what we've seen in the past. And I think that ties back squarely to this new monetary policy mix. No, and what you're saying echoes what uh, Ed Yardeni said last hour. He calls it T-Fed, you know, and that's reinforced by Yellen's uh, Yellen being a Treasury Secretary in a Biden administration. This, just how closely these two organizations are working together. Um, but let me ask you something about this, and again, to make sure people kind of grab onto what you're saying. You're saying a lot of these mega cap tech names, and again, there's a reason we now call, you know, find some of them in consumer staples, but that these are kind of the new bonds. You know, this is the new safety trade. And my question on this is, what about everybody who says, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm looking at bond valuations and I don't like them, but I look at the valuations of some of those names and I don't like them either. I mean, how much of a risk is that? Right. No, I, I take your point. And, and, and certainly there are some signs of froth in some corners of the market. So I don't want to dismiss that at all. But if people are taking a longer term view, what am I going to put in my portfolio for the next few years if, if bond yields are going to stay low? I mean, the Fed's saying they're not raising rates at least until 2023, and that's going to keep a lid on the whole curve to a degree. So what do I own? And I think looking within the equity market, whether it's stable cash flows, types of companies where the, the revenues are going to be fairly stable no matter what the economic environment companies that have certain attributes, again, those things are going to be in favor when growth slows down or disappoints. Um, So I I am cognizant of the valuations, absolutely. But you also have to think about what kind, what basket of stocks do I want to have if part of what that's doing is replacing my bond portfolio. Now, stocks certainly aren't the only thing to look at. There's going to be lots of other diversifying assets to include in that mix, whether it's gold, whether it's inflation-linked bonds, whether it's different types for some investors of private (laughs) markets. Um, So when I talk about tech stocks, I'm not saying that's the only thing you should look at. Certainly not. But it does play a role within the equity market that I think could be different from past rotations. Yeah, it certainly describes the the nature in which they've behaved this year. They have been a flight to safety trade, no question, uh, and certainly give you better growth exposure than bonds. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us today. Good to see you. Great to see you. Rebecca Patterson.
As we continue to look through your portfolio, take a look at some of the names that have propelled the Dow this year. It's the mega caps we were just talking about, tech names like Salesforce, Apple, Microsoft, Nike's in there too. Should you stick with these big safe plays or are there better bets for your money? Our next guest has a few different ideas. Steve Grasso is director of institutional sales at Stuart Frankel and a CNBC fast money trader. Steve, it's good to have you. First of all, would you disagree with anything that Rebecca just said or is this just a way for people who want, like she said, that's the play if you're looking for kind of safety. What's the play if you want maybe a little bit more upside? Uh, where would you go? So first of all, big fan of Rebecca. She's been right for a very long time. But I think, Kelly, what people have made the mistake of is thinking that large cap tech is safety. So if you look at through the prism of off the March low, IWMs are up 93%. Small cap, Russell, up 93% off that low. Currently, right now, if you look at triple Q's, technology, it's up 78% off the March low. So if you change that dynamic and say, well, everything ran. Okay, so let's look at from October 1st. Apple is actually down from October 1st this year. And if you look at Trinseo, a name that I picked for a while now, TSE, that's up 62%. If you look at GE, deep value, that's up 80% from October 1st. If you look at Microsoft, that's flat from October 1st. So I would say those six names that you talk about all the time on your show, that's the old guard. People mm -hmm. are going to change habits, and it's going to take them a long time to change habits on those names, right? So look at, look at the value plays. GE, TSE, WRK, Westrock, names that you don't talk about, Olin, O-L-N. These are names that are going to be the new guard. These are the value names. These are the deep value names. But old habits die very hard. But we're just a blip here. Yeah. When, when Rebecca talked about low, low rates, the 10-year is up on a percentage basis over 70% since August. That requires you to make changes in your portfolio. That requires you to buy value. Fair enough, Steve. Let you want to buy value at a rising rate. I, I take your point. I think a lot of people, you know, are making that argument and are certainly sympathetic to it. Certainly. But let me ask you about the rest of the portfolio of names that I have here quickly. You have Capri Holdings, you have Sonos and Virgin Galactic, and Virgin Galactic is not exactly a deep value stock. No. So you have to round out your portfolio. Rebecca talked about it too, diversification. So, so my main picks are GE, Capri Holdings, Trinseo, Olin, and then I got to round it out. Sonos is a hidden value slash growth play. That one I expect to be much higher in short order. And, and Virgin Galactic, that's my moonshot, Kelly. I think the world, that's going to be the next frontier, not the final. <laughs> All right. You can't say moonshot when you're talking about space. Uh, Steve, thank you so much. We really appreciate it with some under-the-radar picks today. Yep. Steve Grasso Happy joining Happy Thanksgiving, me. Kelly. All right, coming up. You too, sir. Happy Thanksgiving to the cat. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. The market may be optimistic today, but consumers, they're losing some faith. We'll talk about their outlook for income, for business, for the labor market. It's all declining in the latest survey out this morning. We'll look at what that does mean for growth and for stocks. Plus, the man that got everyone talking, J.P. Morgan economist Mike Faroli breaks down his headline-grabbing call for negative GDP in the first quarter. And take a look at the financials. After being left behind this year, they're the second best performer this month, up 19%. Some of the biggest gains have come in just the past week. Lincoln Financial up 14%, no, actually 17%. 
Uh, Wells Fargo up 14%, Citigroup up nearly 11%. We're back in a couple. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets are rallying with the Dow crossing above 30,000 for the first time ever today. It's up 500 points right now. This is in the throes of a pandemic and one that's expected to shrink GDP next quarter. J.P. Morgan warning the GDP could shrink 1% due to the rise in cases and new restrictions. Joining me now with his forecast is Mike Faroli. He's the chief U.S. economist at J.P. Morgan. Mike, it's great to see you again. And is this a worst case scenario or a base case at this point? This is a base case. I think there are downside and upside risks to this. Uh, but so far, we are already starting to see some signs of activity falter and some of the high-frequency things we track, things like our own uh, card spending data, a variety of other daily measures are showing, showing a little bit of softening here in early, uh, early to mid-November. And we do think there's a risk that uh, Thanksgiving could essentially be a, a super spreader event so that as we get into uh, Mid-December, we could see case counts increase further, which will weigh on activity in the holiday season. Uh, and I think while there surely will be a lot of online spending to take the place of uh, brick-and-mortar spending, uh, that won't help uh, service providers, things like restaurants and so forth. Uh, so we do think some, some of the consumer service categories uh, could falter here as we uh, turn the year. Uh, of course, nothing like what we saw, uh, nothing like what we saw in the spring, of course. I think we have learned... Uh, many ways the economy can operate uh, alongside the virus much better uh, than we did in the spring. Nonetheless, you know, to get uh, to get a modest contraction, it only takes, um, you know, a pretty small uh, uh, deviation here in activity, particularly as we head into the holiday season. So, Mike, how unusual is this to go from, and again, everything I, is different with the pandemic, but it's just interesting to me that when we start to get these negative uh, growth forecasts, the market's totally shrugging it off. I mean, does it make sense to you that investors are saying, we're just looking past this, we're looking to the vaccine? I hear people using the term boom now. That's Mike Darda over at MKM. He says next year could be an economic boom. So is the first quarter one step back with uh, potentially a big leap forward to come? Essentially, yes. That's I, I don't disagree with that view. And we, we recently revised up our views on second and third quarter growth, uh, in part because we have increased confidence that the vaccine will be uh, broadly available by the end of the third quarter. Uh, we also are feeling moder moderately more confident that we will get some further fiscal stimulus next year. So, uh, you know, so it, to be sure, and maybe I should have clarified that in response to your first question, this is uh, a temporary faltering we're looking for around the turn of the year. And we do think as we, as we get to the spring uh, that things are looking up quite a bit, uh, again, because mostly because of the vaccine uh, and the good news we've had there, but also because of uh, some increased... Um, uh, uh, hopes on fiscal stimulus. So to the extent markets are forward-looking, I think it is appropriate uh, 
to a certain degree, of course, to shrug off the near-term news and focus on the longer-term outlook. And the longer-term outlook uh, is improving. I have no, no um, I, I agree with that entirely. Yeah, it's good to hear. It, it helps us tie this back to the market. Mike, final question. How big a, a relief package do you think the market can support uh, before the bond market starts to push back? So uh, we're looking for about a trillion dollars in fiscal stimulus coming uh, late in the first quarter. Uh, and what we've seen so far is that the bond market has been able to handle uh, packages of this size uh, in a depressed economy quite easily this year. Uh, now, I should mention that we do think the Fed will be uh, helping uh, insofar as we believe that in the December meeting, the Fed will be extending the average maturity of their purchases, which will uh, which should temper any rise in interest rates due to further fiscal stimulus. So we do think it's important here that uh, uh, both aspects of policy, fiscal and monetary, are operating uh, and pulling in the same direction, which we do think uh, uh, pretends better growth as we get further out into 2021. Yep, it's T-Fed, like Ed Yardeni called it. That's my term of the day. Mike, thanks for joining us. Going into more detail, we appreciate it. Mike Froley of J.P. Morgan talking about what we uh, could have in store here next year on the growth front. Uh, meanwhile, as I mentioned, Dow's up at 30,000, and it's happening against the backdrop of rising COVID cases and with some of America's unemployed facing a new problem, which is having accidentally been overpaid in their jobless benefits, now being on the hook to pay that money back. Rahel Solomon has that story for us. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. So when state unemployment offices were overwhelmed with claims at the height of the pandemic, many, perhaps understandably, tried to get money out the door quickly. But now that things have relatively, relatively slowed down, labor offices are checking claims more closely and they're finding incidents of overpayment. Texas alone reports 260,000 cases of overpayment to the tune of $214 million. Now, Kelly, the issue could be due to a mistake by the applicant, an error on the part of the state or fraud, although Texas, for example, says that fraud represents less than 1% of all claims. Well, for Ahmad Gaban, who's a gig worker delivering packages in Washington, it was his mistake. He incorrectly said that he could work from home one week when he cannot, and the state canceled all of the benefits he had already collected. He received a message close to midnight in August saying that he owed almost $15,000. I just, I was out of words, honestly. I was out of words. Um, it, was, it was very stressful. Kelly, after months of trying to get the issue resolved, Gabon's overpayment was forgiven, but not before a story about his issue was published, Kelly. And so $15,000, what are people supposed to do if they get a bill like that? Try to pay it? Just you know, call their local media outlet? I mean, what do they do? <laughs> it's a tough issue. Well, we spoke to a labor expert, Michelle Evermore, for the story, and she tells us if you get a bill like this, the first thing you should do, the only thing you should do right away is to appeal it. And that's because, Kelly, a lot of times uh, the issue is a misunderstanding. And so further research, further fact finding, perhaps more documentation could resolve the issue. So uh, appeal it first. And, Kelly, some states also telling us that this time around they're not placing liens, issuing liens um, for these applicants and saying that they're also not placing deadlines on when you must pay back the debt uh, if, in fact, it is a valid overpayment, saying that, Say, for example, you owe $15,000 today to the state of Washington. In 10 years, you will still owe $15,000. No interest will accrue. So states that we've spoken to at least say that they're trying to be accommodating as well. Yeah, and while I'm sure making sure that they're not, you know, getting taken advantage of either, it's such exactly. a mess. Rahel, thanks for bringing that to us. Uh, Rahel Solomon covering that story today. 
Coming up, today's retail earnings are proving one thing, shopping in stores isn't dead. We've got the numbers in that story. Plus, as vaccine optimism takes hold in the markets, Jim Cramer unveils his list of return to normalcy stocks that he thinks are a buy. We're gonna look at a few of those names. And the Tesla takeover, the stock dominates Wall Street. Elon Musk is now the second wealthiest man alive. Tesla is up 556% this year, and its market cap is over $500 billion. We'll have more on that ahead. We're back in two. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a check on markets as the Dow crosses above 30,000 today for the first time. We're well above that level right now. Uh, off the highs, when we were up 525, but the Dow's up 445. We're at 3035, and that's a 1.5% gain. Pretty similar for the S&P in terms of magnitude today. It's at 3630, the Nasdaq lagging with a 1% increase. It's over 12,000, though, notably, so a milestone there, too. All 11 sectors are in the green, with energy, financials, materials, and industrials leading the way higher. That's quite a grouping. That is a reopening trade. And all of these four sectors are up more than 10% this month. In the small caps, the Russell 2000, which is up 18% this month already, is hitting an intraday all-time high and on pace for a record close. This 18% gain would easily be its best month ever. And the reopening trade, as I mentioned, is seeing gains not just in terms of sectors, but some of the individual movers as well. MGM, American Airlines, Carnival and Cheesecake Factory, all up 7 to 10%. And the stay-at-home names, those are taking the day off. Pinterest, Peloton, Slack, and Zoom are some of your big decliners today. Peloton down 5%. Let's get to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update now. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Good to see you. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. Within the last half hour, President-elect Biden formally introduced the people he wants on his foreign policy team, including his Secretary of State nominee, Antony Blinken, and former Secretary of State John Kerry as his special climate envoy. Biden says he wants America to re reassume its role as a global leader. It's a team that will keep our country and our people safe and secure. It's a team that reflects the fact that America is back, ready to lead the world, not retreat from it. Once again, sit at the head of the table. Nevada joins Pennsylvania today officially certifying wins for Joe Biden. Although legal challenges by the Trump campaign remain, Nevada's nonpartisan Supreme Court unanimously approved the state's final canvas, which has Biden winning by more than two percentage points. And Beyonce's Black Pride anthem is helping her dominate the just-announced Grammy nomination. Black Parade, released on Juneteenth, is up for song and record of the year, two of Beyonce's nine nominations. Congratulations to her and all of the nominees. Kel, you're up to date. I'll see you next hour. Back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much. Sue Herrera. Big box stores are big in the pandemic. Elon Musk gets even richer. And Bitcoin nears its own all-time high. All that and more is coming up on today's edition of Rapid Fire. It's back right after this. Stay with us.
Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that need to be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines, Dom Chu, Bertha Coombs, and Robert Frank all join me. Welcome, guys. First up, we got to talk about some of these retail movers today. Brick and mortar ain't over. Best Buy and Dick's Sporting Goods both reporting big third quarter earnings beats and a surge in same-store sales as demand for electronics and athletic wear continues to climb. Best Buy's comps are up 23% year-on-year. Dick's uh, just over 23%, which is a company record. Uh, both retailers declined to give forward guidance, and they're getting hammered in the market today. Best Buy down 6%, Dick's down 3%, Bertha. But, I mean, you know, obviously we know digital helps those overall comps, but they specifically yep. gave the in-store figures, and they were very strong. Well, you know, for Dick's, 90% of sales were driven by store. Now, that includes pickup in store and curbside. And that combination, they think, is going to be here to stay. For a lot of people, it's a, it's a matter of convenience. Uh, when it comes to Best Buy, you know, people may have pulled forward in terms of buying computers and phones and things like that. They may have already bought a television set or may still be thinking about it. The body language, not as good on the call, if you will, uh, from Best Buy, but they were fairly Fairly optimistic uh, on Dick's uh, sporting goods. They said, although the warm weather has made uh, sales of cold weather gear a little slower, if it continues to be warm, that'll be made up by golf. So people might still be golfing huh. in December if it's still warm. And if we get cold, then they'll buy the cold weather gear. And they still think golf, either way, is going to help them out a lot. They think that'll be a big gift this year. I know now, Dawn before I tee that one up for Dom, for yeah, Bertha, but, but I actually want to want to follow up with you <laughs> first. So, again, with, with the Best Buy shares down 6%, you mentioned their tone was a little bit different on the call. What did they say on the call? I mean, because if they're more cautious going forward, that would kind of echo the consumer confidence numbers we saw today, the GDP forecast yeah. from J.P. Morgan yeah, for the they first quarter. Said... What did they say that has spooked everybody? They were, they were just not as confident about the fourth quarter. They sort of said they didn't think they're going to see... 70% in the third quarter. They said they're not really seeing that yet uh, for the holiday quarter. Um, again, Dix was much more upbeat. They sort of said we're seeing strength coming into the quarter and even going into 2021 uh, when, uh, you know, Lauren Hobart will be taking over as CEO. She's the president and she talked about how the Omni Channel is really working and helping to bring down their costs. Whereas Best Buy sort of said there were some supply chain costs that were also eating into margins. It was just a little less interesting, kind of uh, hopeful. Dom, just put a quick pin in it for us, because I, you know, this this in some ways is the whole market, you know, encapsulated in a stock right now. You know, are they already suffering a COVID hangover? Is it supply chain issues? You know, that kind of thing. Huge beneficiary of the COVID pandemic. I would say that they they kind of capitalize on a number of fronts. It's not just the outdoor sports. It's also things like patio furniture, apparel, all sorts of things. So if you watch them, they could be a bellwether for consumer spending during this COVID-19 holiday season, Kel. Yeah, that's Dick's and then Best Buy, too. Again, both under pressure in the market. All right, let's move along, talk some Tesla, because it's just so remarkable. Elon Musk is now the second richest man in the world, according to Bloomberg's Billionaire Index. He leapfrogged Bill Gates yesterday after adding more than $7 billion to his net worth 
just in that stock session. He can thank the Tesla shares, which are on a tear this year, including a 34% gain just since it was announced they'll officially join the S&P next month. Musk's net worth has risen by more than $100 billion this year, the biggest increase of anyone on the index. Robert, has he, I mean, listen, it was such a gamble for him to get compensated this way, and it has paid off so unbelievably well for him. Yeah, you know, so he's added $3 billion just today. I have been covering wealth for 17 years. I have never seen anything like the rise that we've seen with Elon Musk in the past 11 months. $100 billion just in 2020 works out to something like $17 million an hour for all of 2020. And we remember, it took Jeff Bezos 20 years to become worth $100 billion and Musk has done it in just 11 months. I mean, it's, it's just incredible, and it sets up this new race. Remember, for over a decade, the race in wealth was between Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. Now, it could be between Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. And look, you know, uh, Tesla would have to reach over $900 per share for Elon Musk to even get close to Jeff Bezos, but by then, Bezos will probably be the first <laughs> trillionaire. Who knows? Uh, but, but these two... <laughs> Uh, Bezos, at, Bezos adding $67 billion to his wealth this year, combined $167 billion between the two of them. We've never seen anything like the scale or the speed of this kind of wealth creation. Yeah, and Dom, I know you I know, keep saying this over and over see. again, but I just wonder what happens on the other side of this. Bertha, just hang on one sec. Because, you know, it, after you have this kind of wealth amassed so quickly, it's not the personal wealth that's interesting to me. It's the size of this company in the market. Uh, Mr. Chu, it's over $500 billion today, Tesla is. It, I, I, you know, if it easy come, easy go is my concern. I, it could be, but there's a long way it has to go down before it matches up to some of the biggest car titans out there, right? You look at the market cap of Toyota and Volkswagen and General Motors and Ford and all those big guys. I mean, Tesla's lapping these guys all around. The big concern is, like you said, if there's a pullback. But I would also say this, to, to Robert Frank's point, Tesla versus Amazon. I mean, yes, one is much bigger than the other, but the two richest men in the world both have space projects. Stock gains like this can certainly help fund a lot of those space initiatives. So something I'd be watching for the next few months and years, possibly at this stage. It's true. Shifting the whole and burden of space from the tax philanthropy onto these companies. Yes, philanthropy in a, in a very, very big way. Absolutely. Yep. Elon Musk did sign the giving pledge back in 2012. If he continues at this rate, he's going to have a whole lot more to give away if he gives away half his fortune. Yeah, that's true. But like I said, if I were him, I'd maybe just wait a year, make sure, you know, if we've got what you've got. Uh, no, he's doing just fine. All right, let's talk about Bitcoin, whose price is uh, kind of mirroring the stock market. As the Dow crosses 30,000, Bitcoin has crossed 19,000, and it's now closing in on its all-time high set back in 2017. That was 19,783 three years ago. Then it went burst. But it's had quite a second act this year, which experts credit to unprecedented fiscal and monetary stimulus, plus backing uh, from the big names, Dom Lake Square and PayPal that we've talked about. But I can't believe another Thanksgiving we're talking about Bitcoin. It's like total deja vu here. <laughs> Three years removed. And the crazy part about the moves that we're seeing this time around 
they don't seem nearly as euphoric, do they, as, as, the, as they were back in 2017 as we were talking about the crazy ride that we've seen. We are back up to the same levels, but there's not that same kind of like frothiness from a sensibility standpoint that you're seeing here. That's not to say it doesn't exist, but a lot of the kind of institutional or, or, or traffickers of these kinds of cryptocurrencies I talk to say that this time around there could be a little bit more of a comfort level developing for not just retail traders and investors, but also some of the institutions as well. And that might be fuel for further upside this time. I mean, again, this is the top area of the range the last time around, historic highs. I'm not sure if it gets above here, but there's a thesis out there that, yes, maybe people are becoming more comfortable with the idea that you can have a cryptocurrency trading at 19,000 odd a token. That's going to be a big deal. Yeah. I think it's true that last time around it, it was like this huge story and everyone was talking about it. And this time it's just more like, okay, yeah, it, it's back up there and, and maybe it's for real this time. Speaking of Thanksgiving, a large number of Americans think gathering with family for Thanksgiving is still worth the risk. A new poll from the University of Michigan's Mott Children's Hospital finds a third of parents believe the benefits of getting together for Turkey Day are worth the risk of getting or spreading COVID-19. Earlier in the show, we talked to J.P. Morgan's Mike Faroli about Thanksgiving possibly becoming another super spreader event. But Robert, I mean, I don't blame people for, we all have COVID fatigue, right? I mean, we've got grandparents who want to see grandkids and, you know, I, my sister-in-law just got a COVID test to make sure she's all right to come and, you know, we're keeping it small, but I don't, it's, it's such a, it's such a tricky one to try to figure out what the right thing is to do. Well, I'm getting a little nervous, Kelly, you know, just walking around Manhattan over the weekend and even today, mm -hmm. the number of people waiting online to get tested, the number of people today walking around with luggage, getting in cars to the airport. I mean, it feels like a regular pre-Thanksgiving Tuesday in any other year. Those people are all going to go places. They're all going to gather. They're all going to come back to New York City, which has kept it fairly under control. So I, I'm really nervous, and I, I do agree with Faroli that we could see a big uptick and a super spreader event as a result of this. Because I just, I think you're right. People are tired of it and they want to take their chances. Bertha, what know, are you hearing? It, you have to think about the situation with the vaccine. You know, I, I've sort of started to think about it. It's sort of like planting tulips. You know, you plant them in good faith and then they come up in the spring and it's so beautiful when they come up. And you have to think of that vaccine that way. We need to be patient. Yes, wearing a mask, being separate is tough, but think about people during World War II, four years of that. So it's, it's been tough, but you gotta hold on. Spring is coming and we do have hope on the horizon. All right, we will leave it with the tulips uh, on that note. Thank you all today uh, for joining me. Dominic Chu, Bertha Coombs, and Robert Frank for Rapid Fire. Coming up, the Dow crossing 30,000 for the first time, the index hitting a record intraday high. Quite a session we have today. And check out some of the retailers. We talked about some of the decliners a moment ago, but Nordstrom, Williams-Sonoma, Dollar Tree, they're all surging this week. Look at these gains, 16 to 20%. Williams-Sonoma and, uh, and Dollar Tree both reported earnings beats. Nordstrom's results are out after the bell today, and it's had a monster month. That's going to be one to watch. Despite all of this, consumer confidence is flagging. Is it just a matter of time until it spills over into the markets? We'll talk about that next on The Exchange.
Welcome back. While the Dow's reaching above 30,000 today, consumer confidence is at back to its lowest level since August. The Consumer Confidence Index for November clocked in below economists' expectations. In fact, the conference board is warning that consumers are less optimistic about the short-term outlook now. Is there something that stocks are missing? Let's bring in Steve Odland. He's the CEO and president of the conference board and a CNBC contributor. Steve, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, usually stocks and this index move hand in hand, but they have come become detached the last month or so. Well, they have, Kelly. And, you know, it's September and October were pretty flat, and they were at pretty high levels north of 100 in our index. But this was a big drop here um, in the last measure, which uh, ended on the, the fielding ended on uh, November 13th. So it's just past the election on this. It's mostly about their expectations for the next six months. And consumers are concerned over the next six months, and they're saying that they don't expect things to get any better uh, over the next six months. Now, consumers' individual reactions are driven by their own job situation. And so what I think they're really saying here is that we just don't, we're worried about our jobs in the next six months. We're worried about layoffs, and, and we don't see uh, anything here on the horizon. And you may recall that our CEO confidence had been quite high uh, in the past month. So this is a gap between CEO confidence and consumer confidence. It's also a gap between the market, which is, as you know, is at all-time record highs and consumer expectations. So the question here is, what are consumers going to do here coming into the holidays? Is this going to depress their spending or is this just, uh, you know, an anomaly? You know, and what what happened with expectations, you know, those six month out expectations, because we had an interesting chat with Mike Faroli earlier this hour where he said they're expecting a negative first quarter GDP number could be even worse depending on what happens after Thanksgiving. But that there's this this sense that we might be in an economic boom by the end of the year. So do you think consumers have that same concept that it might be getting worse now, but maybe looking out past this, it could actually be a lot better? Well, that that could be. And, you know, you have to remember that consumers are worried about their jobs, whereas businesses have the ability to cut jobs and that actually helps their bottom line. So part of the market uh, difference may be that. And, you know, it also is not factoring in uh, all the good news on the vaccinations. So that's not in the consumer numbers yet. But I think that, uh, you know, there's not a big uh, there's not a big worry here from an election standpoint. You don't see that. You do see a lot of worry about COVID. And so this vaccination thing could mean that there's a material uh, impact next month. By the way, there's a big geographic difference. Florida increased 25 points, and they are, Florida is now the most confident wow. state in the, in the union. Um, and you see, uh, you know, the, the most pessimistic states being the Northeast, New York, Pennsylvania. So really big differences there. A couple of other things. Uh, interest rates are helping auto and home sales. So you see continued booms there. Um, and, you know, looking into the uh, into the season here, the retail season, you ought to see everything that is uh, driven in home to continue to grow. So hobbies, home uh, goods, toys, gaming, all of those kinds of things, and all online, as we know. You know, everything is done by a phone right. and uh, computer. No, you know, people are being very cautious about going into the physical stores. Yeah, I think we just have to to wait till next month and see, like you said, once the vaccine news is in there, does the survey snap back? And if not, perhaps at that point, the market will have caught up to the downside. Steve, appreciate it as always. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Kelly. Steve Odlin joining us from the conference board. Run through those results today. Still ahead as COVID cases rise across the country, more people are getting tested, particularly before traveling for Thanksgiving. Despite the CDC's warnings, we're going to get a look at how long it could take to get those test results back. That's next. 
Stocks are soaring today with the Dow breaching that 30,000 level, but there are several names in the index which are lower today than they were at 20,000. Goldman, Walgreens, IBM, Chevron, and 3M, they're all lower today than they were back in 2017. We're back in a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange. Nearly 2 million Americans are now getting tested every day as we head into the holidays. While the lines are long, the wait for results is getting a little shorter. Meg Terrell is here with new and exclusive data on the state of testing. Meg? That's right, Kelly. As so many Americans are getting diagnosed with COVID-19, we wanted to find out how long they have to wait for their test results, particularly as we're hearing about these terrible lines people have to wait in just to get tested. So we partnered with Dynata, which is a data and survey firm, to survey more than 9,000 Americans on their testing experiences. And what we found was that in November, uh, it's a little bit better than it was over the summer, but it's still not great. So if you look at the data, more people are getting the results the same day or the next day and within two to three days. And that's really the cutoff public health experts tell us for what's useful and realistic for people to quarantine. But still, 27% of people say it took them four days or longer to get their test results back. And that's not great, but it is down from 40% over the summer. And one reason for that is our testing capacity has expanded dramatically since the summer. We're now up to almost 2 million tests per day. Uh, that's double from what we were seeing in the summertime. But as more people are getting tested, we are starting to see signs of strain, including today, Quest Diagnostics saying that its turnaround times have stretched now to two to three days on average. Uh, that is better than it was in the summer when they were seeing seven-day average turnaround times. Uh, but it's a warning sign that this is starting to get worse. And they also did warn about uh, global supply constraints as well, which is really playing into this. Now, uh, Brown's Dr. Ashish Jha uh, looked at the data for us and told us, you know, it's better than where we were, but that 27% waiting four days or longer is not great. He said, we've gone from atrocious to just plain mediocre. So I guess that's an improvement. You know, he's saying two days is really the optimal time to get test results back. And when we looked state by state, we found only two states were hitting that metric, Wisconsin and Rhode Island. Whereas if you look at states like Florida and Vermont, they were four days for test results on average. And Kelly, we also asked folks about any plans for the Thanksgiving holiday. If they plan to have people from outside of the home over to celebrate with them, what precautions are they taking? Uh, very few said they were asking guests to get a COVID test and slightly more asked the guests to quarantine, but still just 15%. Kelly, 62% said they weren't asking people to take any precautions. Public health experts warning everybody to be careful over the holiday. Kelly. Meg, also, do you have a warp speed update for us on the warp speed briefing that we just had? Yeah, so we learned a little bit more about how the vaccine allocation is going to go. And if the green light is given to Pfizer's vaccine after the FDA meeting December 10th, states are going to start getting their shipments very soon. Six million doses, they say, will go out in the first week, and then they'll have weekly allotments after that. So kind of learning about how this is going to happen. The other headline from that briefing, Secretary Alex Azar said that the working with the Biden transition team has begun for Operation Warp Speed as well. Wow. Yeah, we see even in the local paper, they have headlines about maybe some of our healthcare care workers getting it uh, in the next few weeks or before year end. Meg, thanks so much for updating on all of that. Meg Terrell. Stick around, everybody. That does it for the exchange. But coming up on Power Lunch, Rick Caruso, owner of the, Gro of the Grove and other shopping centers throughout California. He's going to join us to discuss the shutdowns there, including on outdoor dining now in L.A. and the economic fallout. I'll join Tyler Matheson after this quick break. 
You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.